beautiful Sunday morning here in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, and we welcome all of you who have joined us on www.godsredeemed.org, and thank you so much for joining us. We are continuing our study of the book of 1 Corinthians, and we are continuing with uh, part two of factionalism. There was division in the church at Corinth. It was a division caused by carnality of looking at preachers as someone who was to be heard for their oratory comments or their uh, skills and uh, little regard to the content. And as a result of this carnality, <clears throat> they had also chosen preachers that they chose to follow, such as Paul and Apollos and Cephas. And Paul warned them against this division among them. Let's read just a few of the things that we've uh, talked about last week as far as chapters 1 and chapters 2 of 1 Corinthians. Their division, as we said in chapter 3 and verse 3, was uh, attributed to carnality. We're going to talk a little bit more about that today. And they also uh, were people who thought too highly of men. The gospel is the wisdom of God, and that's what Paul and the, the others were preaching and had preached unto them. It was not the wisdom of man. It was not something dreamed up by some of their wise men or philosophers. It was the wisdom of God, as we studied, that was uh, created long before the world and we were created, and it was handed down through the Holy Spirit to men uh, chosen by God to prophesy, uh, to record, to write, to give prophecy, uh, to give meaning and understanding to the mind of God. The gospel's message was contrary to the wisdom of men, and we talked about that. The gospel appealed to the common man. It was not appealing to the wisdom of men because it is not their wisdom. God's wisdom is higher than ours. God's ways are not at all like ours. And so what was revealed to man was revealed through the Holy Spirit uh, to uh, men who gave prophecy and who gave uh, God's uh, will to us that we might understand, as well as his commandments. It pleased God to save men through the foolishness of preaching. And as we mentioned, that foolishness is not the act of preaching, but it's the content of preaching. Those of the world who are still carnal see uh, belief in God and belief in Christ and doing the commandments that God has given us uh, in regard to morality, in regard to dealing with one another, uh, as being foolish, and they don't listen. The Gospels appeal to common man, man who is looking for truth, man who is looking uh, to understand the Creator, to understand why things are so and how to make them better. Uh, it's not human philosophy there in the first chapter and uh, verses 26 through 31. 
the gospel is God's wisdom. And Paul uh, reiterates that over and over uh, to them in these first uh, four chapters. It is important that the church at Corinth under, understood what Paul was saying to them because they sought man's wisdom. They sought uh, eloquence of speech. Uh, they thought, uh, uh, sought power in uh, earthly words and sentences and uh, perhaps uh, their posture at the podium and other things that they looked outwardly for. Not looking at the gospel of God, this good news, which was wisdom for mankind uh, from the mercy and grace of God. Paul's preaching shows that it wasn't uh, from the wisdom of men, because Paul said, I didn't preach anything uh, out of eloquence. I didn't change the way I preached. I didn't uh, uh, do anything that would appeal to you. I preached Jesus and him crucified. And that's what we need to preach today, Jesus and him crucified. And yes, that comes with preaching and teaching the Old Testament and the New, and it involves diligent study and careful handling of the Word of God. And so when we come to our lesson today, uh, Paul is still addressing this division that's found in chapters 3 and 4, uh, that the Corinthians uh, were having great difficulty with. Uh, we look at this as a two-part lesson uh, today. Uh, first is looking at the proper evaluation of the preacher's duty uh, as his work and the position of a preacher in the congregation. Secondly, we're going to look at the church's place in chapter 3, verses 18 through 23. I hope you have your Bibles. Let's begin uh, with our study. And we're going to look at this proper evaluation of how preachers should preach and what is their job. What is their work? Many times we overload preachers with things that are not their responsibility. Whereas work of benevolence and work of visitation and uh, other things that uh, we put on the preacher are things that we should be doing as well. Sometimes we uh, make the preacher a pseudo elder or a pseudo deacon and we have him doing things that uh, take him away from his study and from uh, his learning. And so when we look at this uh, duty, we're going to look at it in mind of the carnality that is at Corinth. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, Paul says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you weren't ready for it. And he says, listen closely. You are still of the flesh. For while there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not uh, flesh and behaving only in a human way? Paul gets very uh, pointed to them. And it's important that he does. He needs to wake them up. 
verse 4 says, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, aren't you just being human? The word uh, used here is uh, sarkanois, and it means to have the nature of the flesh. And it's the same thing we would say if we said someone is unspiritual. Spiritual. They were babes in Christ. And we know from our understanding of babies that we don't start them off on steak and uh, french fries. Uh, we start them off with milk until their bodies and digestive systems can adapt and grow into being able to tolerate uh, meat. And it's the same way with our Christian walk. Those babes who are baptized into Christ and begin their walk in Christ must begin with milk. They must begin with those things that are meant to encourage them and to teach them of doctrine and teach them of obedience. And as they grow, then we give them more deeper things. In verse 3, he charges them with being carnal. And he says that their carnality is causing this envy and strife that is going on among them. The idea of saying, well, I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos, uh, it just simply showed how carnal they were. But when we look at a preacher, what is his job? What is his work? Well, they're fellow laborers in Christ. These are men who are endowed with abilities to be able to stand before uh, crowds, before the congregation, and to preach the gospel, to preach it boldly, and to be ministers of the gospel. So what is Apollos? What is Paul? Well, they're both servants to whom you believed, uh, as the Lord assigned each, he said in verse 5. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, and God gave the growth. So Apollos and Paul were doing the same thing. They had the same goal in mind. It's like looking at the garden, you know, Miss Young has her beautiful garden and we go out and uh, sometimes she'll prune uh, leaves and I'll water uh, the plants. Sometimes she'll pick uh, things off and, and I'm uh, weeding, but we're not working against each other. We all have the same hope that that garden will produce and it will produce good fruit. And so preachers are doing the same thing, Paul and Apollos and Cephas. They were doing the same thing. They had the same hope. And so he says in verse 7, neither he who plants or he who waters is anything, but only God. It's God who gives the growth. For we are God's fellow workers, he says in verse 9. You are God's field, God's building. And so to show the foolishness of dividing the church by uh, pledging allegiance to these various men, these various preachers, Paul shows that preachers are not divided. In a congregation, there are those men who are ready and willing to preach. There are those men and women for the younger folk who are ready and willing to teach and they're all laboring together at different levels, some to infants. And when they grow and become added to the church through baptism, then men uh, take over their education and uh, 
uh, edification and their strength and their growth. And they're not working against each other just because one preaches the adult class and one teaches the second graders. Every preacher, every teacher has different gifts and they need to use them as the Lord has given them to us. God is the one who gives the increase. While we may stand, uh, and this morning as I teach, I'm teaching so that we may understand what Paul is saying here in this particular epistle. But uh, I'm not working against uh, David, or I'm not working against Leland, or uh, Brian Walsh, or any of the other uh, men of the congregation who are teaching and who are preaching. And so uh, he says in chapter 3 and verse 8 that he that planteth and he that watereth are one. That's the unity that Paul longed for them to have, but they could not understand it and they could not have it because of this carnality. Gospel preachers are workers for God and with God as God gives us the ability. Our goal is to preach the gospel so that souls are saved. Our role is to preach the gospel so that brethren will be encouraged. Our goal is to preach the gospel so that men are corrected. But we must never forget whose church the church belongs to. It belongs to God. It's the bride of Christ. It's God's building. It doesn't belong to Paul doesn't belong to Apollos, doesn't belong to Bruce Higdon. And so he gives this point pretty bluntly to them that the preacher is not to be looked at or looked upon uh, for his ability necessarily, uh, his background of whatever college he may or may not have gone to, but what they preach, the content. So he who plants and he who waters are one. We are fellow workers and you are God's field, God's building. We need to remember that and put it in our minds. He then goes on in verses 10 through 15 to exhort them to be careful how they're building on the foundation. And I think we need to pay attention to this, not just elders of the congregation, but also those who teach, those who preach, and those who sit in this building as a part of it, as precious stones in the building. When we return to this image of the building uh, and look at chapter 3, verses 10 through 11, Paul uh, goes back to this example of the precious building. Uh, he had planted the church, you remember, in our first lesson. He had gone on his second missionary journey. He had ended up in Corinth. After leaving Athens, he had spent time with them laying this foundation and establishing the church. And he built it as a wise builder upon the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Uh, it was a solid foundation, but they had not grown very much. There's no other foundation other than Jesus Christ that we can lay the foundation except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
others who followed him in that building now as he left and continued on back to Jerusalem. Uh, congregations built upon what uh, he had laid, and congregations today do the same thing. Sometimes we get away from building a, a strong structure, and sometimes we allow that structure uh, to go bad like some houses. But he said they needed to be careful on how they built it up. You know, lesser buildings, he said, were made of wood and hay and stubble in those days. Uh, they were just average houses built out of whatever could uh, be assembled. And the better building material was that which would withstand fire, a solid foundation, a solid building. And so Paul exhorts the Corinthians to build on this foundation uh, using those materials that would endure the test of fire, the fire being the test of trials and tribulations and persecutions that would come upon the church. In Ephesians, the second chapter, Paul reminds them that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being fitly joined together, grows into a holy temple unto the Lord. Some builders will rely on the unadulterated gospel to convert souls to Christ and build a temple made up of precious stones and jewels and those wonderful things that regardless if a fire of persecution and storms, the brethren will remain strong and the congregation will remain true and the word will remain true. Other people will rely on their good words, their speaking ability, uh, their appearance and their good clothing to draw men to them rather than to Christ. And therefore the building is constructed of hay and wood and stubble. The Lord's coming. The day of the Lord is going to expose every man through the fire of what he's uh, thought to believe. And we're talking here about the day of trial that we may experience uh, to test and to see just how good, how strong, how lasting our building is, our faith, our hope, and our obedience. That sort of uh, trial is going to separate the good from the bad, and every man's work is going to be tested. Some are going to be destroyed, and the builder will suffer loss. Others will endure, and the builder will be rewarded. Nevertheless, the builder himself will be saved, chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. So the preacher is responsible to some extent to whether he built a, a uh, his house out of gold and silver or precious stones, or whether he built the house of the Lord out of wood and hay and stumble, stubble. A reward would be given to those whose work endured, and the one whose work perished lost his reward. Well, what are these verses teaching? The works of a preacher will be tested. There's going to be a test for all of us who handle and minister the Word of God. On one hand, if he's responsible for having brought into the Lord's temple wood, hay, and stubble, he may lose his soul. 
That depends on whether or not the, the ones that he brought in turn out to be wood, hay, or stubble. Because uh, in spite of his work, the fire will demonstrate which of these is going to be the case. And if he's not responsible, he'll be saved, although he's going to lose his reward. His people, the congregation, are not going to be faithful. The reward of seeing faithful men and women in a congregation who grow and who work and who exceed one another in good works, that's the reward that a preacher has of preaching the word and building a strong, solid congregation. In 1 Thessalonians, the second chapter, verses 19 through 20, Paul told the church at Thessalonica that the hope that he had was them. Listen to what he says in verse 19. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy and his joy and crown. And so we look at this as important to understand that we must listen to the preacher. We must encourage the preacher to stay true and do what is right. Paul reminds us again that the church is the Lord's temple. The language of the Old Testament is very clear about how God uh, felt about the earthly temple. In 1 Kings, uh, the 8th chapter, beginning in verse 10 and 11, here we see that as the temple was being dedicated, when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand and minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. God's glory should fill our congregations, our house of the Lord. God warned if any man, or excuse me, Paul warned if any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. So it's not a light matter to allow the law to be lessened, to allow the pattern to be changed or altered because God ordained the church. It is his building. We are his temple, and we need to be careful what we build on. This word defile the temple means to destroy it, and we can do that. When we change uh, what the pattern of New Testament church is, when we change the word of God, when we allow things uh, modernism and other things to take place in the church which diminish uh, God's authority. We're destroying the church and we're creating a building where Jesus, as he said in Matthew 7, might tell us, depart from me, I know not, I know you not. You are lawless and you did things that were not according to my authority. Well, what's the church's place? In chapter 3, verses 18 through 23, uh, we look at what Paul is uh, telling us that the church's place is. What responsibility does the church have? Well, every man should humble himself by turning from the world's wisdom 
and becoming a fool for Christ. By doing so, he would be wise, Paul says in verse 18. And he reverts to the themes of chapter 1 again, verses 18 through 25, and reminds the Corinthians that God destroys the wise of this world in their own craftiness. He quotes Job 5, 13 and Psalms 94, verse 11, as we studied last week, knowing how God's wisdom is much greater than ours. And one should confine himself to God's wisdom rather than man's wisdom. We see the superiority of the gospel to man's wisdom, that one should never glory in man. Chapter 3 and verse 21. Those who were glorying in men were the ones who were following the various preachers, Paul and Apollos and Cephas. Rather than belong to those men, Paul told the Corinthians that God had given them everything that they needed to confirm uh, the gospel. They don't belong to these men. They belong to the one who gave them salvation. They belong to the one who gave them uh, mercy and grace. The one who had given them these gifts to grow in. The world, life and death, things present, and things to come, all belong to the Christian as well in spiritual uh, matters. We belong to Christ. Christ belongs to God. The church is the fullness of God. We see in Ephesians 1 and verse 23. The church is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This chapter draws to a conclusion uh, the discussion on the division of uh, the church at Corinth. And I think if we're going to... Uh, conclude this chapter. We're, we still have chapter four to look at, but we might wrap it up with these three things that Paul made. The proper estimate of preachers, whether they're preaching the truth and whether they're effective and what they're building on, can only be made by the Lord. Chapter four, verses one through five. And in contrast, the uh, Corinthians and the apostles Paul is going to teach them that there is a difference currently between the Corinthians and the apostles. And then thirdly, the closing words on the subject of division. So let's begin to get into chapter four, uh, the proper estimate of preachers. Preachers, bless their hearts. I know they work so hard. I know they do things that the church will never know that they do. They spend much time in teaching and personal work and evangelism uh, and benevolence and all sorts of things that uh, we all should be involved in, but they sometimes are left to take the brunt of these things. The true test for whether a preacher is of God, whether a preacher is fulfilling his role as the minister of God's word uh, is his faithfulness. That's what we judge uh, preachers by, their faithfulness and their truth. You remember the Bereans, they tested the preachers as to what they were saying were true, and they searched the scriptures daily to find that out. The word for minister is huperites in the Greek. It's a person who voluntarily serves one another and stewards 
a household servant, perhaps, to whom goods are entrusted. They're not lords uh, to whom uh, the congregation bows to or uh, whom they belong, but they're servants of God. The goods entrusted to the preacher are the mysteries of God and that which has been revealed uh, to them through the word. The test of a preacher is not their ability to intermingle, not their eloquence or charm, not the kind of car they drive or the suit they wear, but it's their faithfulness. They are to administer faithfully what has been committed unto them by God. In 2 Timothy, Paul uh, prepares Timothy to go to Ephesus. And as he's going to be preaching there, Paul reminds him of many things that preachers ought to uh, write on their hearts. But in the first chapter of 2 Timothy, beginning in verse 13, Paul tells him, follow the pattern of sound words, the words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit that's been entrusted in, uh, to you. So that's what he's saying, follow the pattern that's been taught to you, faith and love with that in Christ Jesus and the Holy Spirit who uh, dwells in us to lead us and guide us. In the second chapter in verse two of that reference, and what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others as well. You see, we ought to be growing preachers. We ought to be growing elders. We ought to be growing teachers. We ought to be growing deacons. But some congregations, we're not doing that. We take the luck of the draw. But you see, men, faithful men, who can preach and teach and minister the gospel uh, need to be groomed and they need to be taught uh, and nurtured as Timothy was, for instance, by Paul. Men's judgments are premature and they're unreliable, verses three and four. The Corinthians judgment of Paul's work was insignificant. He wasn't preaching for them. And that's a dangerous thing to do. We are preaching for them, of course, but not to impress them. Sometimes our message may be one of chastisement. Sometimes it may be correction. Sometimes it may be love and encouragement and grace. Sometimes it may be to reaffirm the basic principles, but they were not his Lord. And the preacher's Lord is not the congregation. He should not be influenced as to whether or not if he preaches the truth and he's faithful, the congregation likes or dislikes what he may have preached. I've preached things that have upset people and they met me in the parking lot to let me know that. And not just once, but many occasions, but what I preached was true. That's what the preacher's aim should be. But those lessons, as Paul told Timothy, should be with love and grace and tempered with mercy. Having a clear conscience. Uh, Paul had a clear conscience, although he was doing the wrong thing and it was ignorance, but it led uh, to the Lord's approval of him as he repented and heard the gospel of Christ 
confessed his sins and was baptized. Paul could remember a time when he had that clear conscience, but it persecuted Christians and it bothered him. The true judge of servants is the master. The true judge of servants, and we are his servants, is the Lord. Why is that? Well, the Lord knows our hearts. Any judgment prior to the Lord's judgment is immature. Judge nothing before the time. Jesus is qualified to act as judge because of his omniscience. He sees our hearts. He knows our minds. He knows what we need before we ask. He can judge the hidden things and the counsels of our hearts. When we uh, look at chapter 4, verses 6 through 13, Paul is contrasting uh, the church at Corinth and the apostles. And the proper evaluation of men. Paul hadn't mentioned by name those who were creating division and causing the things to go on that were. Instead, he had transferred a figure to himself and to Apollos uh, in order, I think, to spare them. The truth the Corinthians were to learn was this. Don't go beyond what is written, according to the New International Version. 1 Peter 4 and verse 11 says, Whoever speaks as one speaks, or whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. We need to teach and speak, and our words need to be of God. What God has given, what the scriptures say, not using our intellect, not always using a concordance, not always relying on men's understanding but what God has written. Whoever serves, he says, uh, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. In Revelation, the 22nd chapter, verses 18 through 19, there's this warning that is given back at the first of the scripture. In the, whole, in the Old Testament, the Old Law in Deuteronomy, and also here at the end uh, in the revelation of Jesus Christ to John, beginning in verse 18 and continuing on through verse 19. I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in the book. And if anyone... Uh, takes away from the words of this book, of the prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. So we need to be very careful. We need to be diligent. We need to be always studying and understanding rather than changing God's word to fit what we like or what our desires, that's, uh, excuse me, can't talk what our desires might be. Whoever speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. When we look at 2 John, the ninth chapter, or excuse me, 2 John, verse 9 through 11, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. So if we change what is written, if we amend 
what was written 2,000 years ago to, in man's mind, come up to date. We don't have God. We don't have Christ. He says, whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. We have to have that in order to abide in Christ. And he warns uh, those who receive preachers who uh, are contrary to the truth in verse 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. That's why we need to be careful in bidding people Godspeed with what they're teaching without making sure that what is being taught is correct. God gave man different abilities. We all have uh, different abilities. Some are able to preach. Some are able to teach. Uh, some are able to write good articles, write good cards uh, for encouragement. Some are good door openers. I know some young children uh, who are learning to open doors and uh, in the times when we uh, were all able to go inside, often you would see young children uh, gladly open the doors with their smiles. And they're beginning to learn their abilities. God gave us those for a reason. And so uh, in removing any grounds for uh, people to boast, Paul asked, who makes you differ from one another? God is the one who made men different. They all, as we get through the book of uh, 1 Corinthians, had different uh, spiritual gifts. They all had different understanding. They all had different abilities as to uh, what God had given unto them, but he'd given them all things necessary. God is the one who has made uh, us all different. And anything the Corinthians had, whether it was speaking in tongues or prophecy, or miraculous gifts, they came from the hand of God, not from the hands of men. And so it was no grounds for their boasting or being puffed up, which they were, against one another. So it's no uh, surprise that Paul uses a bit of sarcasm to rebuke them in verse 8. Uh, Paul describes their evaluation of themselves. He says, they considered themselves rich and full and reigning as kings. Does that sound familiar to another church you may have studied? Well, if you studied the book of Revelation, you may remember the church at Laodicea, which was a wealthy city. And they were known for many great uh, things that had come to, uh, come to place to make them wealthy and rich. But in Revelation, the third chapter, verse 17, as Christ examines, as Christ evaluates the church at Laodicea, he says, for you say I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Kind of reminds me of the king, uh, the emperor's clothing, doesn't it? They saw themselves as needing nothing, but Jesus looked and saw they needed everything. That can be like us, brethren. Sometimes we judge ourselves lightly and say, well, I'm not such a bad fellow. I'm not such a bad person. Well, would you be willing to risk Jesus 
giving, giving an examination of your heart and of your soul and as you're uh, standing as a Christian, that's the ultimate test. And we need to be preparing our hearts for that. This verse is full of sarcasm as a rebuke to their arrogance. The closing verse uh, contains Paul's desire that uh, they were what they thought they were. He would love for them to be what they thought they were because then uh, he would reign with them in the end. Well, when we look at the position of the apostles, uh, they may have been physically in poverty and they may have been hated and all of those things. But when God examined the faithful preachers, the faithful apostles, he searched them as they were. In verses 9 through 13, chapter 4, we see uh, their position noted. Uh, in contrast to this position of the Corinthians, the apostles were compared to the scum of the earth. They were thrown to the gladiators uh, for sport. The lions ate them and tore them apart for the entertainment of masses. The apostles, instead of reigning as kings, were last and appointed to death, condemned uh, by man. They were a spectacle. The theatron is the word used there from which theaters derived. Uh, it's viewed by the world, both angels and men. In Hebrews, the 12th chapter, verses 1 through 2, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of God. Compare Paul's statement in 2 Corinthians, the fourth chapter, and verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power of God belong, or surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. They were vessels of clay. They were those who the world thought foolish and they didn't come with any great Greek oratory. They simply preached Jesus Christ and him crucified. Look at 1 Peter 2 and verse 23. He describes Christ as he preached his gospel of the kingdom. When he was reviled, he did not revile in, turn, in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but he continued entrusting himself it says, to the one who judges justly, God. They suffered when they were persecuted. When they were defamed, they entreated God. They prayed. They sang. This was the cup which Jesus said they would drink of on that last Passover before he was crucified. And indeed, we must all drink of that cup. Some, someday we may be called upon to be tested as to whether our faith and whether we have the hope in our hearts and whether we're ready to give reason for why we follow Christ, for why we have this great hope. In Matthew, the 20th chapter, verse 22 and 23, when the apostles asked 
uh, made the comment that they would follow Jesus anywhere. Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm able to drink? And they said, we're able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared by my Father. What position we have in life does not give us automatic entrance into heaven. It has nothing to do with that. Just as the two apostles, when their mother asked Jesus uh, for one to sit on the right and one to sit on the left, that wasn't his to give. We each must work out our own salvation. And so the apostles were simply uh, holding the gospel in these earthly bodies made from clay to show that the power of those words belongs indeed to God and not to men. So we have these closing words as we finish our lesson today on the subject of division uh, located in verses four through 21. Paul's harsh language was designed to call them to repentance. They had gotten so far askew of how he had built the church there in the first place. Paul appealed to them to follow his example. He reminded them of the special relationship that he had with them. He was like a father to them. He's the one who had taught them the gospel. He had begotten them through the gospel. And so consequently, he encouraged them to look back at his example and follow Christ. He was also going to send Timothy there. Timothy was going to come, noted in verse 17, and help them. Uh, so Timothy, you remember, uh, had been with Paul. He too was like a son to uh, the apostle Paul. Uh, but first, Timothy was going to pass through Macedonia before coming uh, to them in Acts 19 and verse 22. This letter that we're studying now would arrive before Timothy got there and would remind them of Paul's uh, ways. He is going to reteach them the things that Paul uh, had taught them. And this was uh, the uniform teaching that Paul had taught before. Timothy uh, was going to preach those things that he had heard from Paul and remind them. Paul's explanation for his delay in coming is mentioned in the uh, verses 18 through 21 because he knew that some were going to charge him, uh, so to speak, that it's easier to write a letter and condemn us than stand here face to face and tell us what's wrong. But Paul addresses this because they did do this. In 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 17, Paul uh, answers this charge that, well, you just wrote a letter instead of coming here. He says in verse 17, 2 Corinthians 1, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no, at the same time? In chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians, beginning in verse 9, he says, I do not want to appear frightening to you in my letters. He had some bold things to say. He maybe had some upsetting to them uh, words and warnings to give to them. 
In verse 10, for they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak. It's easier to write a letter than it is to stand here face, and, face to face and point out these things, they said. And his speech is no account of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. So Paul wasn't telling them one thing. Uh, in a letter and then uh, speaking something else in uh, person because he'd shown them that uh, when he first came there and spent that year and a half with them. So this criticism that they eventually gave to him was no good. The kingdom of God was not in word only, but in power. Chapter 4 and verse 20. And rather, he delayed his coming so they could correct those things that were wrong first and then he would come and teach them uh, longer. He didn't want to wish, or he didn't want to come to them uh, with a rod, but rather a spirit of meekness. That's our class for today. I hope you have enjoyed uh, this part of 1 Corinthians uh, chapters 1 through 4, dealing with factionalism. Uh, this idea of factionalism, as we said, is a dangerous thing to happen. It's a uh, it's an upsetting thing that destroys unity, it destroys love, it destroys the word and destroys the pattern as we'll see later. We appreciate you joining us again here at Northfield Boulevard Church of Christ and hope to see you, God willing, uh, next Sunday morning for our fourth lesson in which we'll deal with incest. Until then, we bid you uh, Godspeed and may God bless each of you in your studies of his word.